You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Well, good morning. All right, everybody have a good Thanksgiving? All right, let's do a little get to know you, just as a collective audience. Um, your category choices are turkey, uh, stuffing, mashed potatoes and gravy, uh, mystery dish, and um, we'll throw in cranberry sauce and then pie, so six choices. Well, a quick survey. Who is the turkey person? All right. Okay, not far from vegetarianism. Uh, mashed potatoes and gravy? Wow, a big commitment. Okay, stuffing? Oh, dressing in the South, as they say. Okay, that's translation for you. Uh, cranberry sauce? Grandma's mystery dish? Nobody. All right, stop making those. And then lastly, uh, pie. Yeah. I've really got a long way in life out of um, my two main food groups, which are carbs and sugars, so um, I can appreciate that. Well, I mentioned a few weeks ago when I was preaching my way through Hannah's story in 1 Samuel that um, I looked over my lectionary options that day, trying that week, I guess, trying to pick in. I saw Mark 13, which is sometimes referred to as Jesus' little apocalypse or the little apocalypse, and I thought, no way, because in two weeks, coming up in the first week of Advent, we're going to have some apocalyptic talk, and sure enough, without fail, there it is. And uh, where does the voice of Debbie Downer come to us this year? From Luke 21. Let me reread. Uh, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth of distress among the nations, confused by the roaring of the seas and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding uh, of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Um, so I was thinking this week as I was reading my options, and I thought, well, wait a minute. Preachers have a distinct advantage this year in preaching Luke 21. The world really is apocalyptic this year. Uh, we're still in a, a global pandemic. Um, democracy almost clapped in January. Uh, climatologists tell me that we're like um, a few islands away from a, a f- irreversible effects of, of things just disappearing on the face of the earth. And Tiger King got a second season. And um, that is your fault. Uh, <laughs> some of you in 2020 spent like 10 to 12 hours of your life watching people from Oklahoma train feline, giant felines, and somehow that got to be a show, and now it was such a great show, according to ratings and revenue, that that got a second season. So shame on all of you. Um, so my point, I guess, is that preaching this text is a little bit like making water wet, right? Jesus is a little on the nose this year. Um, if we take apocalyptic literature for what it is, this really shouldn't surprise us, uh, let me take a more obvious text, which is, is Revelation, of the choices in our Bible. Um, I grew up under the spell of Kirk Cameron, um, Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey, if you don't know him. He wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth in the 1970s. In their collective estimation, Revelation is speaking of future coming events. And so, um, you know, there's some interpretive moves to be done here. So you have what, like grasshoppers or probably helicopters uh, the EU forming in what, the late 90s was a sure step towards a one-world government that was talked about. Um, and then the, the leading candidates for Antichrist have changed over the year. Right now it's a three-way tie between like President Obama, Barney the Dinosaur, and Pope Francis. Right, This changes. Um, apocalyptic literature involves some tricky interpretation. My views began to change when I got to seminary. And what I, I noticed is that um, if you read Roman imperial ideology, there's some similarities between, say, the ways the emperors Nero and Augustus and um, Domitian speak about things and what John of Potmos writes in Revelation. And then I read things like Bell and the Dragon, which is an extra chapter in the book of Daniel that doesn't show up in our Protestant Bibles. And um, the clarity about this began to set, and I soon discovered that dragons 
and beasts and Hagrid's magical creatures are all stock imagery for well, uh, trying to say truths about this menacing empire and cryptic language. Um, one might be tempted then to take your apocalyptic reading all the way in the other direction and deduce that Revelation is a description of the past. Uh, but that, I think, would be to uh, count or, or quench the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as an interpreter of their text. Because the truth is, we're always living in apocalyptic times. Um, and there's always powers that be that would love to co-opt our fidelity and make the empire the central beneficiary of our lives. Um, there is something cyclical about apocalyptic expectations. In my lifetime, we've been in the pandemic, yes, which has made this very present to all of us, but I remember in the days and the hours after 9-11, that felt apocalyptic. Um, I'm sure that the Syrians, those that are alive today, could tell us about apocalyptic circumstances um, in the world war that they're, the civil war they just went through. Uh, I'm sure that in 2014, when Ebola was spreading in West Africa, that felt apocalyptic to them. Um, I bet all of Europe felt apocalyptic in World Wars I and II, and that Korea and Vietnam felt like hell in the 50s and 60s. And if we're honest, in America, things have felt apocalyptic to our African-American brothers and sisters for 400 years. I wonder if this is why Jesus gives us the advice he does about looking at the fig trees. It's free lessons and prognostication. Jesus seems to think we have a lot of predictive power. Um, I have to tell you, I got pretty far down a rabbit hole this week studying the brain and how it takes in sensory data and how it makes choices and how it rewards us for getting that right. Um, it's, it's all the time. And it's things as simple as the steps we take where we plant our foot in front of us and we anticipate the weight and how um, negligible that is until we trip. And then we really appreciate that thing we take for granted. Or uh, something like the reward for picking up a pattern in a song and anticipating correctly a crescendo. It's very gratifying. This is how we live. We predict, we predict, we predict. And we make millions of subconscious predictions every minute. And those predictions collectively comprise our expectations. I started paying attention to how this works in my life and, and really noticed how pervasive it is. Um, I can predict a lot. I know pretty much without fail that uh, the Academy Award for Best Picture is going to be a film I don't like because I think it's pretentious. I know that most summers my family will take a vacation and it will probably be somewhere between the end of June and the beginning of July. I know that when we are in staff meeting this week and it's Jamie's turn to speak, I will say Brother Jameson and he will respond by saying yes, hello, it is me. I know that if I'm telling a story and I create an awkward moment because I don't always have the best sensitivity, Taylor will respond with her best Tom Haverford uh, impression and say, no. Um, I know that if Toph is planning an event, he won't tell any of us what is happening until about five seconds before we get there. I know that in 2022, Alabama men's football and uh, UConn's women basketball will both be ranked in the top two. And I know that tomorrow, Jamie will wear black. <laughs> Sometimes our predictive power can almost seem accidental. In 1898, Morgan Robertson wrote a novella called Futility or the Wreck of the Titan. The book details the ominous story of the Titan, the world's, I'm not making this up, largest ship ever built which sank after it crashes into an iceberg. Or there's this, in a 2006 episode of Scrubs, the janitor makes this eerie comment to JD. He says, and I quote, in my opinion, we should be looking for bin Laden in Pakistan. And indeed, the U.S. found bin Laden in Pakistan hiding in a well-guarded house, well house in 2011. Um, if I were to ever open up a fortune-telling business, um, I'd specialize in crime show criminals. Uh, there's a formula to this, you know. 
It's always like the third nonchalant guy that enters the story. He's like a mailman or something. And um, there's two detectives and, and they interview him. And he, this is the first he's heard of the murder. And he's very supportive, like, oh yeah, if there's anything I can do, please just let me know. And then he disappears and we spend 25 minutes of the 42 minutes of the hour uh, chasing the ex-husband who for all the reasons looks like uh, he's the ominous uh, criminal in the story until the neurodivergent investigator recalls a chemical formula about glue adhesive from her class and she realized that it, uh, it was from an envelope and it wasn't a knife that killed the victim. It was in fact a, a letter opener and then all of a sudden we uh, have this epiphany from heaven. We realize that in fact it was the mailman. I can predict this stuff every time. I can find the murderer. I think good predictions come with some sense of personal investment. Uh, let me explain. Every year, the NCAA hosts two tournaments um, for the, the best 64 teams uh, in men, men's and women's basketball. And there are four brackets, and um, the teams are ranked and rewarded for their ability, getting a high seed or low seed. And so it always adds up to 17, the 8-9 play, the 1 and the 16, et cetera. And so um, as you've done, I'm sure you've filled out brackets and you make good predictions. For the first 135 years uh, of the tournament's occurrence, um, it, it never happened that a 16 seed had, had lost two or had beaten a one seed. And so sure, some of us when we fill it out will pick silly brackets, um, but rarely has ever, anybody ever done it and put an $800 bet behind it. Enter Eric Barger who with some buddies went to Vegas in the spring of 2018 and put $800 on the 16-seated University of Maryland, Baltimore County, uh, count, country retriever, county retriever, surely, to beat the number one-seated Virginia Cavaliers. Quite a gutsy prediction, and it worked out for them to the tune of $16,000 in return. There is a more professional but no less risky way to do what Eric Barger did, and that is to play the stock market. No one has done that more successfully in the last 15 years than Michael Burry. You may know him because he was played by Christian Bale in that movie, The Big Short. Uh, Burry has to be some kind of genius. He was a pre-med and economics major at UCLA, went to Vanderbilt for medical school. After graduating from there, Burry went to a residency in neurology at Stanford, but never finished. Why? Because he developed a hobby, uh, which was this uncanny ability to uh, uh, predict outcomes on the market. And so slowly, Burry developed a reputation as a value investor by sharing stuff on message boards. So he started uh, Cyan Capital, a, a hedge fund. In his first full year, the S&P fell 11.88%, but Cyan's hedge fund went up by 55%. The next year, the S&P fell another 22%. His fund went up by 16%. Finally, when the stock market turned around, it went up almost 29%, but Burry beat it again that year. In 2004, Michael Burry had $600 million and he was done taking investments. He was turning people away. And then he started watching the subprime mortgage market in, in the mid-2000s. So he persuaded Goldman Sachs and other firms to sell him credit default swaps against subprime deals that he saw as more vulnerable. Burry bet against the real estate market and made his investors $700 million. Here's what Jesus says. Look at the fig tree and all of the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know the kingdom of God is near. Sometimes I wonder if Jesus knew what his words around apocalyptic things were going to do to people if he would have tempered them a bit. Um, I remember when I was a kid, there was this pamphlet that was floating around. and It was 88 reasons why Jesus was coming back in 1988. Um, and this is nothing new if you grew up around 
kind of crazy Christian, evangelical, apocalyptic Christian predictions. Uh, there was one every year, it seemed like. Um, but what was, I guess, notable about this one was that some people took this very seriously and charged massive amounts of debt on their credit cards and borrowed against their retirement to go on these really extravagant vacations because they thought for sure that they weren't going to be here in 1989. But that didn't happen. Or they missed the rapture. Or they didn't bother to flip over into Matthew where it says that Jesus says nobody knows the day or the hour. Could have been prevented. Look at the fig trees. This image, uh, the fig trees, it's agrarian. It shouldn't surprise us. Um, in fact, we have what Jesus talked about, weeds and, and wheat and, and seeds and grain. This is what Jesus uses. It's in his world, which is a challenge for us because I don't think we've ever, ever been further from our food or really probably from nature in the way that our lives have unfolded. And in, in Texas, our seasons are sort of erratic, right? Um, so what do you have? You have summer, and then you have summer part two. Then you have like three days of fall and November. Uh, don't blink. And then winter which is mostly benign, except for last year when we discovered everything's bigger in Texas, except for the power grids. And then there's spring. So uh, catching the change of the season here can be a little bit tricky, uh, even for the trained eye. In fact, the only way that we know it's fall around in Texas is that the coffee shops start serving pumpkin spice mocha and the flannels come out on campus and the uh, camp counselors finally stop wearing their chacos. Um, I wouldn't know what to tell you by looking at the trees. But I wonder if that's part of the problem, and that's part of what Jesus is coaching us to get better at. Look at the figs. Um, if you want to be a good predictor, you do need to really learn to see. This is how tricky our brains are. We can't see what we don't know what to look for. Let me tell you about an experiment that some people put together a few years ago. They would sit down participants and um, have them identify like six cards from a deck, um, and they would like through them and see if they could recall them, right? So the first time they would move through the cards quickly and it was the ace of hearts, it was the three of diamonds, it was the four of clubs, and then the participants would lose track. Um, and that was okay because they were going excessively fast. But then they would do this again and then they would slow down and same thing, ace of hearts, three of diamonds, four of clubs, and then they would lose track again. So they would stack the cards again and go excessively slow. Like this is the turn everybody should get it. Same thing, ace of hearts, three of diamonds, four of clubs. They lost them again. Then the big reveal. The experimenters would flip over the cards and reveal that the one card that nobody could remember was the six of spades. And that was because the six of spades was red. What we learned is that we can't see what we aren't looking for. Look at the figs, Jesus says. Um, the great painter of the West, Georgia O'Keeffe, says that no one really sees the flowers. Not really. To be a good predictor, you have to learn to see the fig tree. Uh, take Michael Berry again. He wasn't just talented, he worked hard. He spent many hours learning to see. After his 12-hour shifts in his residency, he would go home, stay up all night. He would read about global politics and market trends. Allegedly, one time he fell asleep in the middle of a surgery and fell over, almost knocking a patient off of the table. Um, I will say that if I could get Jesus on the podcast with me and Taylor, um, I would ask him about this particular text. And it's a tricky one if you care about consistency. And this is what I mean. Take example, for example, verse 32. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until these things have taken place. And my question would be, until what has taken place? Because that generation passed away. And the next generation passed away. And the next one, and the next one, and it's been 2,000 years 
and we're still looking at fig trees uh, so that we can predict and know what's going on. And, and so I think this Advent word about attentiveness and waiting and predicting, well, it can be a lot. Um, I would not, now like to register a concern with Jesus um, because we've now all had some first-hand experience with the apocalypse and in our own worlds, and because we've been doing this now, what, for 21 months together? And I feel like I can bark back a little bit at Advent week one and say something about waiting. Um, and if nothing else, we'll call this a prayer of complaint. Um, and I'm not sure if that's one of the categories in the Psalms, but we're going to do it anyhow. So here is my prayer to Jesus. Dear Jesus, I'm tired of waiting. I can now acknowledge that my apocalyptic experiences has been one that is relatively cushy and privileged. I've had access to vaccines almost as soon as that was a possibility. Neither my wife nor I lost our jobs. While we've run pretty low on toilet paper a few times and I had to wait over a year for my mountain bike because of supply chain shortages, I've not been concerned about our most basic needs being met. But I am tired, and I know a lot of other people are too. I'm tired of Zoom, Zoom meetings. I'm tired of supply chain shortages. I'm tired of masks. I'm tired of wondering if I'll be judged because I forgot a mask. I'm tired of masks being a political conviction. I'm tired of people fighting about vaccines. I'm tired of people not being able to be together. I'm tired of people dying. I'm tired of people demeaning people that disagree with them. I'm tired of feeling like it's getting better only to discover that in some part of the world it's getting worse. I'm tired of variants. I'm tired of politicians politicizing death, disease, and public health policy. So I'll keep waiting, mostly because I don't feel like I have another choice. But I'll be honest, if you were hoping that this waiting was going to do something spiritual like grow patience in me, then you picked the wrong strategy. Respectfully, Josh. Uh, I remember the first year I got the opportunity to preach through Advent. It was 2007, and what was going on in the world then. Um, there was unrest with the transition of leadership in Pakistan. Uh, that was the year of, of the Virginia Tech shooting. Um, we were in the middle of the mortgage crisis, which I alluded to earlier. And worst of all, J.K. Rowling had published the last Harry Potter book. My God, the world looked bleak. Um, but then I discovered it looked bleak again in 2008 in 2009, in 2010, in 2011, and eventually I became less impressed with Jesus' apocalyptic prediction. And I got tired of waiting. And I wonder, how about you? Are you tired of waiting this year? It is Advent week one. We light a candle of hope. Um, it can seem, I think, obnoxious to talk about hope when the world's problems loom so large. But that's what we do, we hope. Or as the song goes, the thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. There's no conjunction there. There's no preposition separating that with two statements. They just coexist side by side. Thrilling hope lives in a weary world. And I think that's because hope can only be a category among weariness. So um, if, you're, if you're like me, and you sometimes feel worn down at the end of the year by all that has happened, um, then know that you're in the right place. Hope is the business of the church. Um, if, if you're in a position to hope, what you usually discover is that hope is unpredictable. It comes from unsuspecting sources like what? Um, talking donkeys, serpents on a stick, five loaves of bread, two fish, crosses. The only regularity about hope is that it seems to always surprise us. Um, I will tell you, I don't particularly enjoy the Advent texts from the lectionary, um, this one in particular. Uh, I've just come off a week of hanging Christmas lights, meaningful friendships, watching Christmas movies, drinking wassail, and then Jesus comes in and 
says, things are going to get really bad, so get ready. It's like, Jesus, have some eggnog or something. Um, so, so you know what I did when I got to this point in the sermon was I was preparing this week is I went and looked up my sermon on this passage from years past. Just I asked myself, well, how did I get out of this trap? And what I did is, is I, talked to my, I talked about my dad um, when he was still alive and how hopeful he was and about how resilient he was. My dad died from multiple myeloma. It's a cancer that destroys your bones and eventually your body. And I talked about how despite his bad prognosis and um, what the doctors would say, he just really didn't care. He was too busy looking at the fig trees. And I realized while I was reading that 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 was my dad's last advent from 2015. His, his wedding is over now. Um, which made me think about the last moments of his life um, it is strange when you know somebody's dying, when you can be present to all of that and um, count the, the seconds tick off the clock in those moments. Um, I remember asking our hospice nurse about the signs of death. And you know what I was trying to do? I, w- I was trying to uh, predict what was going to happen. Even in that moment, I wanted some control and I wanted to map out every precious last moment of his life. I wanted to hear him breathe his last breath. I wanted to... Uh, feel his warm skin for one last time. I wanted to see life while it was still in his face, but it had been a couple of nights of being up uh, night after night and not really getting great sleep. And so I endured till about one in the morning and I, I finally decided I had to go get some sleep. And so I took my dad's uh, Bible down to, to where I was sleeping my bed and I had prepared myself for this great moment because uh, the stakes couldn't be any higher. And um, I thought if God's a deist, then this is the moment that would surely force God's hand. God had to speak. So with like my Gideon-like fleece in hand, I planned on opening up my Bible and being blown away by what the Lord was going to speak to me. And um, I, I did open that my dad's Bible by myself in the middle of my sister's basement. And I laughed out loud with all of the angels of heaven because God did speak to me. There, acting as a bookmark, holding his place in Jeremiah 29, 11, my dad had five Powerball tickets. On his dying bed, he refused to stop dreaming about his future. There was the thrill of hope in a weary world. Um, You know what happened two hours later is is Jesus came and got my father, just like he promised he would. UBC, may we be a people who find Powerball tickets in the book of Jeremiah. May we be a people who find the thrill of hope in a weary world. May we be a people in this Advent season who carry this flicker of light that shines around in the darkness because may we be a people who rely on and live into and celebrate the coming and the arrival of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this season of intentional waiting we thank you for this season to reorient, reacclimate, redirect our vision towards you. And um, we appreciate this opportunity to live vicariously through the life of Israel in the darkness and remember what life was like before you arrived. And so in this season, we confess um, both that you have come, but that you will come again and that we look forward to that. So Jesus, teach us patience Teach us to clearly see, teach us to look, to learn to look at the fig trees so that we may be faithful and that we may be people of fidelity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At the conclusion of the preaching portion of worship, we'd like to take time and sit in silence together, perhaps 
the Holy Spirit will minister something new to you, or perhaps the Spirit will correct something I said incorrectly. So let's listen together. 